just starting to happen now and I'm really excited about is the diaspora of people from the first generation of AI-driven bio companies that have gotten to scale. Those companies took in people from biology, CS, labs, and built really the first industrial-scale data generation platforms for machine learning. Welcome to Zipsy Spotlight. I'm Cass, co-founder of Zipsy, a design and investment firm that supports startup founders with brand-building expertise. In this series, we'll be exploring intersection of AI and biology. ChatGPT learns to talk by reading lots of internet texts. Midjourney learns to create unique images by analyzing billions of them. So if the large language model studied biological data, what opportunities do they unlock for the future? Today, we're excited to have Dylan, a partner at Zeta Ventures, investing in a number of digital biology companies that have gotten to scale. Let's deep dive in. We're your co-host, I'm Kaz. I'm Kevin. Through the lens of his early days at MIT to his role at Zeta Venture Partners, Dylan sheds light on the growing importance of data and machine learning. I'm one of five partners at Zeta Venture Partners. We're an early stage fund for technical founders who are building products around data and machine learning. My partner, Mark, started the fund 10 years ago at the very beginning of what we can think of as a modern era of deep learning. This is just as ImageNet had been won by the team at the University of Toronto. And it was clear that software was getting easier to build and the real power from technology was going to come from data and the kinds of algorithms that we could build around that. We're typically the first institutional investors to back founders, often at inception stage. We're usually leading or co-leading their first round and, and we really try and be active partners to our investors. We make many fewer investments than most funds of our size, somewhere between 20 and 25 per fund. And out of a $180 million fund, we reserve a lot more capital for follow-ons and we're making a commitment to, to founders, usually when they're just at, at the idea stage with the deck and, and some ideas that we're going to help them build a company and get from zero to one. And, and we take a really boutique approach. Every company is different. And so we don't have a platform team. We don't have a big investment team. It's really the, the five of us working you know, closely with each of the companies that we support and the companies that we support across the the portfolio. My background is NML as well. I was lucky enough to see the very early innings of deep learning work in computer vision at around the same time that Mark was starting the fund, but I was over at the Media Lab at MIT, spun a, a company out of there in the manufacturing space, which was really one of the first applications of machine learning for enterprise, thinking about how to make manufacturing more efficient. And that was about 10 years ago and have really not looked away since. And so I've spent the rest of my career truncated by building a company and then joining Zeta to invest in companies all around how you leverage machine learning to build things that are really new and, and interesting and important. For the last couple of years, I've been really transfixed by applications in biology and health, both because I think they're really important and meaningful, but also I think it's where machine learning is going to have the biggest and most nonlinear impacts where things, I think, in the future will look very different as a result of these technologies than they do today. Up next, Dylan gives a clear picture of the huge possibilities that lie ahead as he explores the link between LLMs and biological data. Today, we've got large language models and large self-supervised pre-trained models that are learning directly from biological data, from protein sequences and DNA and RNA sequences all the way up to, to human tissue, the same way that 
these large language models like ChatGPT read all of the, the sort of comment sections and every Wikipedia article, all the sort of textual data on the internet, these models are able to learn from these big databases and experimentally derived libraries of biological sequences. And rather than learning you know, the context of how language works, meaning, semantics, all the things that go into really understanding language and having cultural fluency or conversational fluency, these models are learning a lot of the underlying pinnings of how structure and function emerge from biological data like sequence data for proteins. So using that basically internal representation, what they've learned, which I think is important to say, we don't fully understand the way that we understand human language. We do not have the same grasp of biological language, but these models are building really rich internal representations of that and can use that basically for a whole bunch of downstream tasks, some of which are generative using the chat GPT analogy instead of generating a poem or a response to a question as a prompt in natural language, they can generate functional proteins, sequences that can be synthesized, that can be used as drugs, as new materials, as biosensors for diagnostics using that sort of same uh, analog. Amazingly, this, this seems to be working, working really well in the protein space. We have a company there and there's quite a few others that are building these sort of ChatGPT-like products for various proteins and then using the output of those to develop drugs, to develop materials. And we're starting to see it scale to other modalities as well. Protein language models, there's DNA language models, there's now people working on mRNA and RNA language models. And also push the boundaries on what's historically been possible in these fields, given how little we understand the sort of functional relationship of all these really complex molecules that dictate life. Drawing from his extensive experience in current projects, Dylan provides a clear snapshot of where technology stands now and its trajectory for the future. It's the collision of two forces, uh, which is the data generation and the computational technologies are moving extremely fast. And drug development is extremely slow for good reasons, right? If you're going to put something in thousands, millions, even billions of people, if you're going to permanently change their biology in some meaningful way, you really want to make sure it's safe. And given how little we know about human biology, the only way to do that is by testing it exhaustively in people in a very controlled environment, so clinical trials. The big bottleneck, I think, has and will probably always be clinical trials. But in terms of what we're able to do and show in petri dishes in the lab and increasingly in mice and larger animal models is really profound and really interesting. There's a couple of big themes in our portfolio at this intersection. One is in line with that, the protein company I talked about, sort of rational molecule design. Can you take a lot of traditional discovery processes where you used to mine through large libraries and look at chemicals and test them to see if you can find something to starting with what you want, whether it's a particular target or a particular set of characteristics, and design that molecule from scratch. And I think what we're seeing there, especially in the biologic space, and so that's protein-based drugs like antibodies, it's gene editors, it's transient editors like mRNA. I think what we're seeing there is one, the ability to design these molecules in a really precise way, but rational design paradigm is letting us do things that 
would have just been impossible or would have been very difficult in this rational or in the discovery world. A good example of that is we have a company, Nablo, which is taking sort of known antibodies that are able to hit certain targets, but are not developable or not manufacturable or basically not, they work in a lab, but they're not viable in production. And they're able to really dramatically change the properties of those so that they're highly stable, so that they're less immunogenic, so that they have these properties that make them viable and easy to administer. I think we're already starting to see the next generation, which is not only how can we make existing drugs much better, but how can we use these biological substrates, antibodies, non-antibody scaffolds, mRNA, to, to do new things, whether to hit new targets that were previously thought to be undruggable, whether it's affecting multiple targets at once that are bispecific or polyspecific that have changing characteristics once they get into the cell or once they're in the presence of a certain kind of protein, change the way that they interact. These are things that are totally new and totally weird. And I think have the potential, this stuff takes a while, and there's still so much we don't know about <laughs> biology, but they have the potential to really change medicine, to address new intractable diseases, to dramatically change response rates. We have a lot of drugs like in immunotherapies that work extremely well on a very small percentage of patients that they're given to. And can we build those out for every new subtype and, and all kinds of, of new things? And that's in human health and disease. There's obviously a lot of people interested in tackling longevity and aging, which is the inverse of, uh, of the disease paradigm. And there's a lot of applications outside of human health as well. We're seeing some really interesting things happen and applications for alternative uh, energy sources, uh, inputs to biofuels and things like that. We're seeing uh, industrial consumer products, things like alternative proteins and meats and, and all kinds of things, building materials. I think our work has been much more focused on human health, but it's clear if you can rationally design biological building blocks of the world, they've got applications that are much broader. Building on his insights from Zeta Venture Partners, Dylan goes into more detail about how to find and interact with founders in the field of biology. The number of people that can start a software company and get it to scale is just orders of magnitude bigger than the kinds of people that are going to be successful at building these companies. Given that there's actually a very small world of potential founders, we take a kind of inverse approach, which is looking for the pockets of people that are most likely to have the unique insights and the tribal knowledge to build these companies, and then figuring out what they're excited about, what they're working on. And a couple of high-level things we're really looking for are these like deeply intersectional teams. We call them bilingual or multilingual teams, not biology teams, not computational teams, and not teams that have one computational founder and one biological founder that exists in silos. The thing that we've seen really work in this space is the deep intersection. These are computational people that really understand the underlying biology, understand the experimental methods. And these are you know, experimental biologists that really understand data and how machine learning and these reinforcement loops work. It's only in that intersection of people talking to one another. Those two pieces are really intractable from one another. The world of people that is truly bilingual in this space, again, is really small. And there tends to be, I would say, two big buckets. The first is you mentioned labs. There's, I would say, still a pretty small number of academic labs that are really at this intersection. Now, these are places like the Baker Lab at University of Washington, George Church's lab at Harvard, and the Brigham's lab at, at the Broad Institute. I would say maybe two dozen more. And these are places that are not 
biolabs, they're not CS labs. They really are looking at that intersection, developing new experimental techniques for machine scale learning and vice versa. We're just starting to see a new generation of these sort of bilingual researchers who either learned biology like through the lens of machine learning or through machine learning with biological use cases and applications. So that's very new and a small enough world of those people that we can spend real time with them. We follow our research really closely coming out of those labs. We're, we're there and long before there's a company often, we're, we're building that relationship with them and, and we're really aware of kind of the work that they're doing. What's nice about academia is it, it happens out in the open with preprints now, it's happening much faster. So a lot of what we do is, I would say, talking to non-companies, talking to interesting scientists that are doing cool stuff. And then the second bucket, which is just starting to happen now, and I'm really excited about, is the diaspora of people from the first generation AI-driven bio companies that have gotten to scale. And this is folks from Recursion, Accentia, in Citro, Immune AI, those companies took in people from biology, from CS, from some of those labs and built really the first industrial scale data generation platforms for machine learning. And the people who are coming out of those companies now have seen this playbook, I think have learned what worked and what didn't work and come to this problem with a ton of tribal knowledge, which is actually hard to get. I would say even in academia, just because the scale is so much smaller, the kinds of experiments you could run as a multi-billion dollar company versus an academic lab are, are really different. And scale is you know, increasingly important, both on the compute and the data side for machine learning. Those are places where actively getting to know folks and, and starting to back companies. And, and the rest comes from there. We're doing our job right and we're being good partners to our founders. We see more and more new opportunities and interesting research through the portfolio versus on our own. Tracing back to his interactions with the founders of Noetic, Dylan walks us through the power and promise of data in drug discovery. Our, our most recent announced investment, a company called Noetic, which is working on next generation of oncology drugs. The founders there, Jake and Ron, were at Recursion. Ron was one of the earliest employees, led research, was the, the CSO at one point. And Jake was a good friend of his from college. They went to Stanford together, went on to Genentech, and Ron recruited him to Recursion a couple of years in to help build out the oncology team. At the time, Recursion was really one of the first AI-driven drug discovery companies built probably even to this day, the biggest large-scale data generation platform looking at cell painting and, and using some other techniques. And it was mostly focused on, on rare disease in the early days. So they built out this oncology team. It was pretty small, almost like a little skunk works and grew to be a, a really meaningful part of their platform. And today I think it's, it's probably more than 50% of their focus. Actually, Recursion just announced some promising uh, results from a partnership with Genentech out of that team. And Ron had seen one of these companies really built from the ground up and had as an early employee, had served every role that there was from building the platform to business development, partnerships, and really got to see, I think, the power of large-scale data generation or industrial-scale data generation, but also some of the limitations of working with cell line data, which is what they were looking at, not data from humans, but from cell lines that you then perturb in this way. And I think him and Jake, like so many people in the space, have a lot of personal connections to cancer and a real passion for trying to do cancer drug development better. 
the two of them left to, to start Noetic with a lot of the insights, like the functional insights that they had gotten from recursion, but with a, a different model and some really different ideas um, based on having started the company six years later. And I would say the two big ones were one, starting with human data. So can you learn directly from data samples derived from humans, in their case, looking at human tumor samples. And so not individual cells, but entire slices of tumor to see how cells within the tumor are interacting with the immune cells in the immune system, this tumor microenvironment. So much more complex biology than within a single cell. Then using new experimental techniques, in their case, spatial imaging, a whole suite of technologies that allow you to see not just what's happening in an individual cell, but that cell in its spatial context. So groups of cells coming together to mount an immune response, say, to a tumor in order to shrink a tumor, basically. The first insight was around, can we build very different kinds of data? Can we learn from richer, more human representations taken directly from patients? These are not models. And the second, which I think gets back to this first question about, about LLMs was, could you learn in a totally self-supervised way? Could you train something like a foundation model on this human biology to learn fundamentally new insights about cancer that you could then use to develop bad drugs? This is just an evolution of having started a company in, in 2022. They had this insight, a really a hypothesis that if you could generate this large human data set, a really rich one, you could use that to feed a model. Think of it as like a chat GPT model, but instead of text or protein sequences, which are sequential, could you feed it really rich multimodal data? So images, transcriptomics, proteomics, multiple modalities of what's going on and train a model to learn this like really rich and meaningful representation of immune response, basically to predict what tumors, so not necessarily even what patients, but what tumors are likely to respond to immunotherapies. If you could do that, could you basically use that to develop new, much more precise immunotherapies, not those that worked in 20% of patients they were given it to, but closer to 100, and lots of this, almost treating cancer like a, a rare disease. If you could do that in a totally self-supervised way, you could learn new cancer biology. You could learn, you're, you're not beholden basically to human labels, which is obviously really important when you're trying to figure out something that you don't understand, like immune response. But yeah, so, so got to know them, you know, early on, I'd spoken to a lot of founders out of recursion and interestingly, they all had a lot of the same kinds of insights applied to different things. Let's generate different kinds of data. Let's use different learning methods. Let's try and develop drugs faster. A big learning from the first generation of these companies is they just took a really long time and spent a lot of money on the platform before getting into drug development. Talk to people who are working on the experimental side, who are really pushing the boundaries of, uh, of spatial and, and a couple others. And I was just really enamored with the idea, I think, at a time where certainly before ChatGPT, I think the image generation tools, the diffusion models were just starting to come out. One of the things that really gave me conviction that this was possible was playing with early versions of Midjourney and Dolly and seeing that these models were learning really complex representations of image space. They were able to create images in the style of Francis Bacon, in the style of Picasso. And in doing so, we're learning something very deeply essential about what those artists did and what they meant without actually being told any explicit instructions. And the idea that could work for medical images to unlock new biology was 
you know, once it felt like a long shot, but also thought, wow, if this was possible, it's worth doing. And the team that's going to crack it is the team that can generate the right data to train the model and then knows what to do with that model, how to learn from the internal representations, how to validate them. And nobody was trying to do this. And of the people who were trying to do it, nobody had the sort of expertise in data generation and the biology and the drug development that this team does still early, but they built a, a really remarkable data set in a really short amount of time and they're training their first models that fingers crossed seem to be learning some novel biology that's really meaningful and potentially drivable. These are the moments you live for as an investor or anybody who works with startups. In this final segment, let's dive into how Dylan navigates the world of research investments and evaluates potential breakthroughs. As a general case, oftentimes in medicine, the problems are well understood and well articulated and the business case is clear. And so it becomes almost the inverse of product market fit, which is can you build the product? So there's a ton of technical and scientific risk. If you choose the right problem area, and actually I think that's really important. So if you start with a problem that you know is valuable to be solved and you can actually do it, then I think everything else is a little bit more straightforward. If you can design an antibody that does X, Y, and Z, like often the way these partnerships work is like they're really clear on what this, the customer is very clear on what the spec is and they'll tell you that ahead of time. So that's good. Actually doing that is extremely hard. And the only reason that I have the, the confidence to invest in these things is because it is truly unknowable a priori what is going to work. Very few people have sort of intuition for what it's possible at this sort of new intersection of large-scale data generation and machine learning. And so we're all basically starting from zero, and it's a quest to see who can learn the most and the fastest and, and most relevant. With as few priors as possible, I think, has been really helpful. So it, 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 it's really about trying to develop, I think, intuition for what might work and the kinds of people that, that might be able to pull it off. In the Noetic case, had some intuition or hope that these sort of like large-scale vision-based transformers could learn like really meaningful biology from multimodal image data, had a lot of conviction. That team really understood the nature of the problem um, in terms of generating data, in terms of training the model, in terms of making something out of it. And venture is about getting it right like 10% of the time in a really big way. And so for starters, you're wrong all the time. That's, I think, helpful. In the case like Navla, they had published some really interesting academic work that was getting some attention. There was a lot more to look at and say, hey, this technology looks really promising. And then the leap is, can it be applied to this particular problem? So everybody solves these problems with toy problems in academia, which is useful for all kinds of reasons. We've cured cancer in millions and millions of mice, but I have a real problem doing it in people. It's a more translational question. But again, that's no different in this domain versus any others. It's at the early stage, you're making a bet on the founders and you're making a bet on the fact that they're going to be able to unlock something really unique and interesting through a combination of an insight that they have and determination. If you like this Spotlight episode, please leave us a review. We're just starting out, so every review really helps. Follow us on Twitter at Zipsy.com if you don't want to miss an episode. That way, you'll be able to see every time a new show goes live. That's all from us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Zipsy Spotlight.